Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Pray with me this morning. Father, we just lean into this song this morning and acknowledge that um, you are seated because you are undefeated. And we just want to bow before the one who is at the right hand of the Father and give thanks for the cross and for the resurrection and for the promise that you will someday return. And Lord, we lift our eyes today. We lift our eyes to the hills and above the hills to the maker of heaven and earth. And we say you have made us and you have redeemed us. So we are yours. God, we are yours. We belong to you. And I pray today that you would receive our worship. God, thank you for this chance just to sing and just to love you out loud and just to publicly affirm our um, allegiance to you. Lord, we pray that you do something bigger than we could have asked or imagined in these moments that we share together. And we ask it believing that you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, there are just times, you know what I mean when I say there are just times when I don't want to quit singing. I just want to, I had a pastor in high school and we had a morning like this and we were just singing and um, he stood up to preach and he said, oh, forget it, let's just sing. And we just sang and it was just, yeah, it was just good and so grateful for our lead worshipers because I get the feeling that this is not a job for them, that it's who they are. And they're worshipers and they're, they're leading us by worshiping. And I'm grateful for that. Grateful for all of you today. So this is a weekend where last year we spent $17.3 billion on love. Valentine's week in 2014, the numbers aren't in yet, but uh, the average man spent $108. I'm not calling anybody out. I'm well below average this year in that regard, but $108 to express love and and uh, just to celebrate that, yesterday we had a wedding. And I was thinking it's the first time that somebody I dedicated to the Lord as a member of a church that I served, I performed the wedding ceremony. Now that excludes my own family because last November, a year ago, uh, with one of our sons, but a member of our church. And 27 years ago, uh, we dedicated Lindsay Abigail Collins to the Lord. And then her parents took our kids to camp and so we babysat her uh, for a week. And uh, when she um, wanted to go to college, I wrote a letter for her. And when she walked across the stage, I handed her her diploma. And yesterday, right over there in the chapel, um, they said their vows, she and Joshua, yay. And yay, it was um, amazing, amazing, uh, just all that. And I'm thinking they should never, ever forget their anniversary, right? I mean, you know. You get married on February 14th, you just can't forget uh, the day that you, got, that you got married. And we have all these pictures of love in our culture, and I think some of them are warm and fuzzy. For example, um, Tracy Melchiori sent me a picture from the seeing eye yesterday. Now that's warm and fuzzy, okay, that's love, right? What's even more loving is in a couple years, if they, uh, if they uh, uh, make it through the program, they'll be leading somebody, helping them to find their way. We have this fairy tale sort of image of marriage. And I read this week, one pastor said, so, you know, it starts out as an ideal. And I look in the eyes of these couples who are exchanging vows. There's this idealistic anticipation of the future. It starts out as an ideal, sometimes becomes an ordeal. 
And unfortunately, sometimes people end up looking for a new deal. And I want to offer a very different picture of relationship from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Um, Paul says, the greatest picture of the love of Christ for his church in this world is marriage. And I'm pretty sure that wouldn't sell in Hollywood, um, but I want to tell you this morning, it serves us well. Let me show you in God's word. Let's stand together in reverence for our God and his word today. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 21. You know this passage. Let's hear it again today with, uh, with open hearts and ears today. Uh, he says, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and take care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Ephesus, ancient Ephesus, was all about love. And Paul wrote to a church there where they had this enormous temple. Some of you have been to Ephesus. I know we took a group of people back in 2001. And there's this enormous temple to Artemis, Diana, the goddess of love. They were a city that thought they had love figured out and they worshiped this goddess of love. And if they worshiped her, she was going to help them fall in love and it was all going to be well with them. And Paul wrote so many interesting things to this church. Great theology, chapters one to three. It's all great theology. But in chapter four, he begins to be very practical. And I've always thought, well, he talks about practical matters of the new life in Christ in chapter four. And then in chapter five, he talks uh, about being filled with the spirit. And then he talks about family. But I'm not sure we can separate it up like that. In fact, what I would say is, apart from the teachings of chapters four and earlier in chapter five, I'm not sure these verses that we can take this text out of context without making it a pretext. So what does it say? It says in chapter four, we put off the old life. We put on a new life. What does that look like? Well, we don't lie to each other. As Christians, we speak the truth to each other in love. And we don't live angry lives, always angry at other people and communicating that anger to others. But instead, 
we choose to build up and strengthen and use our words to give life to other people. We're not the kind of people, he says, who think it's all about taking from others. But instead we say, I wanna work so that I can give to you. Now imagine those thoughts in the context of marriage. I think it's Ann Atkins um, in her little book who describes this and says, before we can hope to be good husbands or wives, we need to learn to be good Christians, which means we must all become self-sacrificial and submissive. And the idea that he paints for us in this passage is of this symbiotic life-giving relationship in which husbands and wives submit to each other and sacrifice for each other. And we want to sort of segment it and say, well, the husbands do this and the wives do that because we like to know. And, you know, husbands are always like this and wives are always like that, except in my experience, that's just not true. What I find about husbands and wives is that we're all unique coming from unique families with unique needs and unique personalities. And what we need is the whole counsel of the word of God. And so some days it's submitting and some days it's sacrificing and sometimes it's this way and sometimes it's that way. But the only way it will ever work is if we are filled with the spirit of God. Apart from God's help, we can never ever live marriage the way that God intended for it to be. And so he sees it as this mutuality of ministry that reveals a great mystery, the mystery of Christ's love for his church. And that's a higher ideal and objective for marriage than our world portrays with hearts and pink. Because this means that marriage is not about self-fulfillment. Stanley Hauerwas challenges us. Maybe he makes us angry with some things that he says when he says destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. So I marry this person because they complete me, but ultimately only Christ can complete me. And then he says, the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry. You ever assume that there's that right person out there and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. And the moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Now, aren't you glad you came this morning? Isn't that just good news? No, no, listen, but his point is this, and I think it's important that if you think if I just marry the right person, then everything's going to be fine. You misunderstand because people are always changing. And somebody looked at that and said, well, it's also true that we always marry the right person. I'll buy that too. But here's what I want to say. Marriage is not about finding the right person. Marriage is about being the right person. And if we can learn to be in Christ who God saved us to be, then we would find that we have the strength to do everything we need to do in marriage. But if we have this sort of ideal out there that there's this perfect person and they're going to be perfect and perfect means they're going to help me fulfill myself. We misunderstand the truer and higher purpose of marriage, which is to reenact the gospel to show the world the love of Christ that has transformed us so that they will want to know the Savior who has changed our lives and can change their lives as well. This is a higher purpose for marriage than we might have imagined. And what he shows us is that in a spirit-filled marriage, a marriage that is full and overflowing with God, 
We will minister to each other in this mutuality of submission. Notice that it's mutual submission, verse 21. Notice that it's relational submission. So everybody submits to everybody in the body of Christ. If we could get that right, I think we would have less trouble with that word, which means sometimes um, it's not a matter of value. It's not a matter of dignity. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, not a matter of equality. That was settled when we were all made. We said in recent weeks, in the image of God, male and female in the image of God. But what this means is that sometimes we have to say, okay, I'm gonna trust you on this one and I'm going to trust. And so there's this, there's this spiritual as to the Lord. So we submit as to the Lord who is the savior of the church. And we are willing to do that volitionally. So it's volitional submission. The wife sometimes grants to the husband, the headship, and she allows um, him uh, to give leadership to her. And sometimes we chafe at that idea. Andy Stanley was talking to a group of young ladies one time after a wedding and, and they said, you don't really believe in that whole submission thing, do you? And he said, well, before I answer your question, can you just imagine this? You're married to a man who genuinely believes you're the most fantastic person on the planet. He's crazy about you. You have no doubt that your happiness is his top priority. He listens when you talk. He honors you in public. To use an old-fashioned term, he cherishes you. He's not afraid to make a decision, but he values your opinions. He leads, but he listens. He's responsible. He's not argumentative. You have no doubt that he would give his life for you if the need arose, and you never worry about him being unfaithful because, in fact, like an old flamingo song, he only has eyes for you. Would you have any trouble following a man like that? He asked, and one of the women said... No, I would love to meet him. <laughs> I would love to meet that guy. Can I introduce him to you this morning? His name is Jesus. And he loves you like that. And we submit to him. And as the husband is growing in relationship with Christ, progressively he becomes that kind of person. And I just see this absolute non sequitur in the, in the brokenness of our world that on the one hand we chafe at the idea that any of us would ever have to submit to anybody. And at the same time, the most popular movie at the box office this weekend is about a young woman who is forced to sign a contract with a young man so that she can experience intimacy with him in some bizarre, twisted, distorted way. And we we call this entertainment. And the lead actor in the movie asked about the fact that his wife just had a little girl said, I am hoping and I'm going to work as hard as I can to keep my daughter from ever seeing that movie. Anybody see a conflict in that? Anybody see a sort of, um, you know, um, strange step backward in the call for, for love and cherishing and valuing other people. And all I can say about that and about the epidemic of pornography in our culture is that these are sure signs of the brokenness of marriage and relationships in our world. And all of this distortion, the desire to dominate, uh, the, the willingness to pursue this, uh, this, this dream that the prince will come, all of that I think shows us something of the brokenness in our world that only Jesus Christ can fix. And in this world, I'm not speaking against anything so much as I'm speaking for marriage to say, God shows us a better way where we live our lives in willing submission to each other so life is not about me. 
Life is about sharing life. And so then husbands begin to love, he says, as Christ loved the church. And the longer portion there, if you look closely, is to the husband. And it describes Christ's love for the church. And it says, husbands, you're supposed to love your wife in the same way Christ loved the church. And what would that be like? That would be like laying down your life for her. And I remember the story, I I read it again this week, of, of Dory Stoddard, who on January the 11th of 2011, back when Gabriella Giffen was shot, Remember that our congresswoman was shot, the congresswoman from Arizona, and, and uh, that day six people died, and one of them was, was Dory Stoddard. And he, he dies, but he dies as he wraps his arms around his wife and protects her from the bullets and literally takes the bullets that would have taken her life, and he lays down his life for his wife. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many men in this room would do that. Here's what I think. Before you, before you want to raise your hand, let me just say, I think a lot of men in this room would do that for their wives. Let me give you some good news. You're probably never going to have to do that. You might, you might, but you're probably never going to have to do that. But just to establish credibility, would I, can I ask, you know, about, instead of just saying lay down your life, would you like, would you lay down the remote? Well, let's just, let's just start with small things, right? Like, you know, pick up the towel, you know? Um, I'm preaching to myself this morning. You know, lay, lay down the running shoes, you know, for one day. Would you, what, would you, what would you do to establish that kind of love? And I, I'm indebted to, to Darla and her, uh, and her uh, Facebook account this week because she, she sent out this story about a guy named Rick who's married to a woman named, named Carrie and they have this idealistic vision of marriage, but they are absolutely, what is the deal with this? They're absolutely opposites. Maybe that's what attracted them uh, to each other. But when they get in marriage and they start trying to work that out, it is just a daily fight. And he becomes rich and famous, but uh, that doesn't help the problem. And he's in Buckhead, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia, at a Ritz-Carlton, trying to work through an argument with her. And she hangs up on him, and he is just broken at this point. And he's angry, and he starts yelling at God. But the good news is when you're yelling at God, at least you're talking to the right person. And he's yelling at God and talking to God and saying, you know, God, I'm angry at you. I'm angry at her. I don't understand how we can be so incredibly different. And this is never, ever going to work. And all of this. And, And he hears this moment of illumination that says, yeah, so you can't change her. But you can change yourself. With my help, you can change yourself. And he prayed in that moment and said, God, if you're not going to change her, would you just please change me? He goes home. It's about the temperature of your refrigerator everywhere he goes in the house. He wakes up the next morning and he says to her, how can I make your day better? And she thinks he's joking and she's angry and he presses and she says, you want to make my day better? Just, hey, clean the kitchen. So he does. And the next day he says, how can I make your day better? And she says, really? Clean the garage. So he cleans the garage. And then another day, and she says, quit asking me that. Why are you doing this? He said, because I care about you and I care about our marriage. And he asks her again, and she says, could we just spend some time together? And she confesses her part in the problem. And they begin to work on this. And as they work on it, God begins to heal. And the anger and the quarreling and the fighting subside in the pure power of the grace of God to forgive. I think that's something like Paul was talking about. I think that's what he means when he says submit and love sacrificially. It's this symbiotic life. And here's what Paul says. When we do that, when we minister to each other in that way, in some ways we are mirroring the mystery 
of what God has done for us in Christ. And just look again at what Christ does for his church, how he, he sanctifies his church and washes us uh, through the water of the word because he wants to present us to himself as spotless and blameless. And this beautiful picture shows us that marriage is not finally about us. In fact, as Tim Keller says, marriage is not ultimate. And almost every couple I know who's getting married thinks marriage is ultimate. And by ultimate, they mean this is gonna fix my life. And it never exactly works that way. One of my young friends said to me recently, so what I learned in, in marriage is that that person can't complete me. That person, my spouse, can't do for me what Christ alone can do. That's great insight. Marriage is penultimate because it paints a picture of the beauty of what God is going to do through all of eternity. That's why Keith Green, that prophet in song, saying, I remember in the 80s, he sang, uh, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. And then his second verse was, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. Though our love seems to grow each passing day, as I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. Who's ultimate? Christ is ultimate, Christ alone. And just good news for us, because I mean, I have preached and I've heard preachers preach through the years and, and this sort of pessimistic view of marriage. And I just, I have so many young people in the room today and I just want to give you some good news about this. You know, we used to say, well, 50% of every marriage that takes place is going to end in divorce. I mean, you know, there's some point in which people go, so why even try? So I'm not even going to get married. I'm just going to try this out for a while because I don't even know if marriage is going to work anyway because it didn't work for my family. It didn't work for that family. So it just, it never, it almost never works. If it was 50% 10 years ago, surely 60%, no, here's the deal. 72% of married people in America are still married to their first spouse. 72%. That's a very different statistic, isn't it? And in the 28% included in that are the people, by the way, who were married to their first spouse when their first spouse died, which means the statistic is a good bit lower than we had feared. Then throw into that the idea that, well, Christians have the same divorce rate as the non-Christians. And so what's the point of being a follower of Christ? What difference does it make to have a Christian marriage? And the answer to that is your very presence here today statistically means you have a 27% better chance of staying married than a person who's not a follower of Jesus Christ. I think that's a good number too, which puts the number of Christians and look, every one of them, look, I'm, I'm the product of a divorced home. So I get this. I understand the pain but sometimes we look at that and we hear these numbers and we go, so it's just inevitable. And here's what I want to say to you. It is not inevitable. By the grace of God, we can learn to serve each other and live together and love each other for a lifetime. And God will empower us for that very thing. And I said this morning, life is hard and marriage is sometimes hard. And one of our older ladies said to me, marriage is not hard. And I said, I'm happy for you. I'm very happy for you. But marriage is sometimes hard and it certainly is a lot of work. But it is worth the work. And I read Jill Severson's story this week of her parents who married at the age of 19, married for 62 years. These are hard days for them. She's battling with Alzheimer's. She gets that sundowner's effect. Some of you know what that means in your family. When the sun goes down, there's this disorientation and confusion. And she's sitting in her own apartment at an assisted living with her husband and her daughter. And she starts looking around and she says, I wanna go home. But she is home. But she says, I wanna go home. 
And first she says it to the walls and then she begins to say it to her daughter. And then she looks at her husband and says, why don't you get my coat and take me home? And he just kind of shakes his head and, and she, she shouts at her daughter. Um, he never talks to me anymore. He just shakes his head because she can't remember that two years ago because of cancer, they removed his voice box and he can't talk anymore. And she just begins to shout and says, why do you shake your head at me? And why don't you talk with me anymore? And she's just screaming and she's angry and it is raw and it is brutal. And in the middle of that pain, there comes a moment when she moves, shifts from horrid to kind again. And she says, oh, Swede, you dear man, we can make it here tonight. We'll just stay here. It'll be okay if we just stay here tonight. Won't it be okay? I'm going to go get ready for bed. And so she goes and gets ready for bed. But before she goes to sleep, she comes back and she puts her hands on the arms of the, of the recliner and she gets her foot of her face about a, a, a foot from his face. And she says, do you have something you want to say to me? And he mouths the words, I love you. And she says, I love you too. And then Jill Severson says, though, though time and the pain of life have taken away her memory and his voice, they have not taken away their love for each other, which transcends all. And every time I see a marriage like that, and I get the privilege of seeing those periodically here, I feel like I need to take off my shoes because I'm on holy ground because this is the grace of God at work again in a family. And here's what I want to say to you. Life is hard and sometimes it's painful. And sometimes it takes away our memories and we forget things, but let us never forget that God loves us with a love that will not let us go. And even if we've lost our ability to articulate our love for him, he has not lost his ability to tell us that he loves us and someday our prince will come for his bride, his spotless bride. And my work as a pastor is to present you to him spotless. And so with all the energy in me, I want to call you to a life of faithfulness to Christ and to relationships that honor him that are so much better than, than literature and movies and pornography could ever, ever portray. And maybe the reason we hunger so much for love is because we've not come to understand how fully and completely God loves us. But when we know how he loves us, then we are empowered to love each other like Christ loves his church, like he loves you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace that is greater than our sin. We confess we're broken, Lord. And we have all these broken pieces and sharp edges and a lot of it doesn't make sense. And in the middle of that, we believe that your grace is greater still. And we ask today, Lord, that you would help us to minister to the people in our families by loving them, by submitting and sacrificing for them. And we ask, Lord, that somehow your church in this world would continue to show the world in our relationships what your love can do for people who love you and are called according to your purpose because you are working all things together for good. And what can we say in response to this? God, you are for us. And all these centrifugal forces in our culture that pull us away from our loved ones and make us live lonely, isolated lives in our own homes, 
All of this centrifugal force is not nearly as powerful as the cross which draws us together closer to you. And the closer we get to you, the closer we get to each other. God, make that true in my home, in our homes today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.